Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 33. I'm Tiernan Duyev and let me tell you, I've never had misogynistic locker room banter like Donald Trump and that's not just because I find the idea of making conversation with naked men I don't know awkward and intimidating while I'm just trying to keep my towel on and stop sweating after two minutes of attempting to run. Welcome listeners, new and old, to a week where if it was an 80s VHS video, it would have been banned for causing too much distress, and then after 30 to 40 years of censorship, it would be re-released with those watching it having enough distance from the horrific events to view it as nostalgic comedy. Though if Donald Trump, the man who were Sigmund Freud to have delved into his mind, he would have described him as a gargantuan orange arsehole, if Donald Trump does become US president, then really, humanity is unlikely to survive to anywhere near 2046. Yes, this past week has been one hell of a political fire pit that was, beforehand, merely a terrible cesspit, and now is that smell, but stronger and more dangerous because it's on fire. Prime Minister Theresa May set out her vision to reclaim Britain's centre ground, which I'm pretty sure the Conservatives never had in the first place, and I'm almost certain, after their week of anti-immigration rhetoric, that they think it's been invaded by foreigners and will require some sort of war just to get it back. Theresa May also insisted that it's now centrist to be against human rights lawyers. You know, those people that protect human rights. You know, the ones that, uh, you know, you'd only really be against if you weren't human and you were hoping for the destruction of humankind. Uh, the Prime Minister then condemned capitalist elites, and so I presume Theresa May's first step in dealing with that will be taking down her husband, who's a senior executive at a $1.4 trillion investment fund that profits from tax-avoiding companies. And all of this worryingly proves that in the current post-Brexit climate, the centre ground is now somewhere so far right, if builders were to use a spirit level with the same degrees, all shelves would just become slides for your favourite objects. And if the idea of Theresa May doing her best Enoch Powell impression isn't scary enough, managing to be an even worse human being to the extent that even the GOP won't back him anymore was US presidential candidate Donald Trump. The sort of man that is so awful that even the most twisted minds have imagination barriers to stop them creating someone like him. As if being racist, potentially committing tax fraud, not paying employees and endlessly lying wasn't enough, a video obtained by the Washington Post from 2005 showed that he's actually also an extreme chauvinist. 
Yeah, I know, I know. Surprise! I mean, really, the only way any of us would actually be surprised by anything Captain Buffon McTwat did would be if he said he'd taken in some homeless puppies to look after and every now and then he has a fondness for quinoa. But these comments that he made were so appalling, condoning sexual assault, that 33 senior Republicans, including members of Congress, Senators and State Governors, have all withdrawn their support of him. Because, you know, up until that leaked video, everything he did was obviously pointing at him being prime presidential material. Also, when you consider how many Republicans, including Paul Ryan, are against abortions, and in the case of Paul Ryan, sponsored a bill to narrow the definition of rape, it does seem like they've put a lot of pots and kettles out of work. Trump's defence of these comments during the second US presidential candidate debate was simply to say that Bill Clinton has also been awful to women and then tried to pin that on Hillary, which is A, a bad idea for a sexist to blame a woman for her husband's sexism, and B, a bit like saying what Donald did was fine as, you know, other people have done it too. It would be like going on trial for murder and your not guilty statement being, hey, Harold Shipman did it first. But Hillary Clinton didn't really answer any questions well during the debate either, or talk about her policies much. Maybe she's assuming that she'll never persuade Trump voters to change their minds, or that perhaps Donald will be arrested by the time of inauguration anyway. Hillary isn't doing enough though, and she's currently at 48% in the polls, which isn't bad considering Trump is only at 44 but there is still 6% of America completely undecided. Or perhaps they have already just started filling in their visas to live elsewhere, knowing that really the only choice they have is between an American president that will embrace neoliberalism even more than before, or one that will probably miss important meetings because someone pointed out to him that if dogs have eyes and so do we, are we all dogs? And now he has to sit still until he figures it out. Good luck, America. Hey, so thanks again for listening to what is going to be a very croaky edition of the show today, and hopefully that will make it unintentionally jazzy. Uh, If it helps, just imagine Tom Waits is delivering it all. Uh, So, uh, yeah, thanks though, um, and thanks lots for your uh, latest comments. Uh, There's been some really nice ones on the iTunes, um, and it's been really nice at Geeks lately, where some of you have come up and said that you actually listen to this weekly waffle, so thanks to those of you who did that. Um, So look, I was persuaded by Chris uh, at the Barnsley Skeptics in the Pub Society, who I should say, if you live around that way, are running excellent events under the banner of We Shall Overcome uh, with the aim of creating countrywide solidarity and helping those those who are suffering under austerity. Not helping those to suffer from austerity, that would be terrible. No, helping people who are suffering uh, under austerity. So yeah, they're a really nice bunch, do check them out. Um, But Chris, who's part of that team, um, persuaded me that this podcast should probably have some way of funding it, uh, what with me spending a silly amount of time on it each week for nothing. So I've been a bit reluctant to do this, as I like the idea that it's free and available to anyone. So the plan is, it will stay that way, obviously, but what I have done is set up a Patreon account. And what that means is if you do want to sponsor this show and help me do more with it, um, I mean, more funding means I can spend more time on it, possibly think about doing live events, other extra things, uh, then you can head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and sponsor it for as little as $1 a month. Which, yeah, considering how far the Great British Pound has fallen in the past week, is probably around 200 quid. Sorry about that. Um, I am going to be adding some extra things to the Patreon where I can as well. Um, And obviously, you know, if you can't or you just don't want to, that is also fine. Because, look, you know, I think eating and shelter is overrated anyway. Ha! I joke. I'm eating right now. 
Uh, I'll be popping some sort of video on the Patreon site ASAP as well, or, you know, wherever I finally get a haircut and deem my face suitable for viewing. Um, but right, this week's show, uh, it's a bit of a long one. Why? Well, because uh, I've been extremely angry about the increasing xenophobic content of all the horrible comments at the Tory conference, and I had two people both saying that they were up for an interview uh, to discuss that issue. So I thought, why not just speak to them both, have one bumper episode that deals with it. Uh, so this week we've got Carissa Singh, uh, who created the post-ref racism account, and Vera Chock, who is a writer and performer who regularly speaks out about equality and diversity. And I think both of them said a lot of very interesting, very clear things about what is happening and ways to deal with it. So there's all of that. Uh, also, there is a tiny bit of Brexit madness. And before any of that, there is, of course, this. It looks like Britain may move its borders to Ireland's airports and ports uh, because obviously it would avoid them having to try and write an amendment for the Good Friday Agreement to help keep the peace by sticking a big fat wall between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Currently, the UK and Ireland have the CTA, or Common Travel Agreement, which allows freedom of movement between the two, hence Michael Flatley's career with the freest movement ever seen. But these border controls would aim to stop non-Europeans from using the CTA, but wouldn't be able to stop EU migrants, as they have freedom of movement in Ireland anyway as part of the EU, and so ultimately wouldn't really curb numbers in the way that the British government want. Certain experts say that EU citizens probably won't want to come and work in the UK post-Brexit anyway because, let's face it, why would you want to travel to a cold country where you feel unwelcome and work for a currency that's now worth about a third of your own? I mean, you'd achieve a similar result setting up a tent in a meat locker and burning some of your own money for warmth. While the sharing of information between, say, Dublin and London is probably a good idea anyway, Ireland's foreign minister said they wouldn't be able to put in tight controls without the other EU countries agreeing it in the first place. So it turns out that when the government had been banging on about leaving the EU and taking back control of our borders, it meant it was only so that we could lend them to someone else instead. And with the way things are going, I suspect Dublin Airport may soon be host to Ryanair flights full of Brits trying to illegally sneak their way back into European countries first. Irish MEB Matt Carty says that British immigration problems should be the least of Ireland's worries as their country will suffer as a result of Brexit too, seemingly forgetting that the UK isn't known for being the empathising or caring one in any of our many relationships. Really, if that's what Ireland are looking for in a partner, even Johnny Depp would be a better option. England's Academy Trusts have run up debts of £25 million in a gesture that makes you wonder if the name Academy Trusts is in the same ironic vein as Little John. The Department of Education's Education Funding Agency investigated Lilac Sky Schools, a trust that operates nine primary schools in the south of England. It appears that they were paying £800,000 a year to outside companies run by their co-founders and £200,000 a year to one of their managing directors, while paying other staff less than minimum wage and running at a deficit of just under £700,000. Academy trusts are largely taxpayer-funded, yes, from your pocket, and an investigation earlier this year by Channel 4's Dispatches and The Observer found that many of the trust's executives were spending inordinate amounts on expensive travel, luxury hotels and fancy cars, because they seemed to think that they should have a first-class service while running one that is clearly just attached to the back of the plane with a rope. The Department of Education said only a tiny number of Academy trusts reported a deficit last year, and they will be monitoring them closely. In the meantime, academies don't have to follow the national curriculum, so I do wonder if all children at those schools are now merely just attending self-confidence seminars on how to run an effective scam so you too can drive a Ferrari. 
UKIP are like a constantly ridiculous joke that unfortunately certain people still take far too seriously. First, their new leader Diane James resigns after just 18 days because there is really nothing that they won't leave. And then this week, potential new leader candidate and diecast for an estate agent Stephen Wolfe was hospitalised after fisticuffs with a UKIP MEP in Strasbourg. As if the idea of Stephen Wolfe being a patient at a hospital in Germany and therefore some kind of migrant health tourist wasn't enough, the MEP that allegedly hit him has the surname Hookham. Yes, nominative determinism at its very best since, well, UKIP's Mark Reckless. Apparently the fisticuffs occurred because Wolfe was in talks about defecting to the Conservatives, proving that a rose by any other name would still be likely to be crushed by a block of luxury flats put up by either UKIP or the Tories because they're largely the same. This possible defection and questions about it led to a scuff, landing Wolf in hospital and UKIP to prove that they can't even do infighting without going too far. Former leader and professional smegma Nigel Farage pointed out why he was such an ideal leader for the party of pound shop bigots by suggesting that the fight was like something you'd see in a third world parliament, because apparently there isn't a single situation that he can't be racist about. Stephen Wolfe might still stand for leader if he's able to stand after his injuries, but the future of UKIP now looks bleak, with the Conservatives pushing the anti-immigration stance even harder than they are. Maybe it's only a matter of time before UKIP end up in their absolute dream situation of being confined to the past. Labour's been reshuffling all up in here, and with his newly elected mandate, leader Jeremy Corbyn has selected a handful of his ministers with only a tiny 59 positions left to fill. Yeah, I'm sure all those MPs will come running back once they find a knife sharpener that will fit on the benches. But while some are happy with the new appointments, and there is a mix of both Corbynites and Corbynmites, I think that's the term, many are angry that Jezza didn't engage with the party at all about the appointments, and Chief Whip Rosie Winston was fired on the spot after being called into a meeting. Which is, to be fair, better than an emoji text of a gun and then a smiling poo. There are more women in the Shadow Cabinet than before, causing critics who said last time that he didn't have enough equality in his team to this time say, no, not those women, we don't like those ones. Especially about Diane Abbott, who has been promoted to Home Secretary, which, look, while I'm not a fan of her often patronising tones and her superhuman ability to find the wrong thing to say for any occasion, it will be interesting to see how long it takes before Boris Johnson says something racist or sexist about her and has to leave his post in the Foreign Office, so all in all, it could be very smart thinking. On top of that, new Shadow Minister for Overseeing Brexit, Keir Starmer, has already contradicted Corbyn's statements by saying he thinks that we do need to reduce immigration. As mentioned on the rest of this week's show, this is awful, awful nonsense. Unless, of course, he's just talking about the Labour Party and hoping he can take up to two to three seats by himself and lie down to snooze through any further nonsense David Davis says. I'll do a full round-up of the new Shadow Cabinet next week, when hopefully there'll be a few more seats actually full. I mean, really, they should at least do it to music or something. Also on Jezza Corbyn's ever-growing list of things he likes to do without really telling people about and ultimately causing some sort of terrible consequence, he attended a Stand Up to Racism conference on Saturday, despite promising that he wouldn't, on account of its connections to rape apologists, the Socialist Worker Party. Despite the organiser of Stand Up to Racism tweeting that they had a broad membership and no direct connection, one of their co-conveners is actually a Central Committee member for the SWP. It is baffling that when even strong supporters of Corbyn asked him not to appear, his team said that he wouldn't, and yet he went anyway. It's also even more baffling that a 67-year-old man had a perfect excuse to stay in on a Saturday night, yet still didn't take it. And if that isn't untrustworthy, nothing is. 
While Dwayne Johnson is the rock, the UK is very much an island. Not only that, but an island whose history and attitude probably created the idea of island mentality. And if it didn't, we just assume that we did anyway, because we are that great, right? I mean, great's in the name. In recent years, Brits have got even more touchy about their borders, with the press and politicians increasingly pointing the finger of blame at immigration, rather than the austerity measures or global financial crash, which definitely actually caused it, but you know, that requires people remembering things. While it's been said again and again that voting for Brexit doesn't mean you are racist, it is clearly evident that those of a narrower, more xenophobic mind found it far easier to assume it was those foreign types that they'd never seen or met what done all the bad things, and so voted to leave in the hope of better border control than, you know, the passports we already have. In the UK, there has been a five-fold increase in racially motivated attacks since the result of the EU referendum, and both the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and the European Commission on Racism and Intolerance have said that politicians and the UK press are to blame for this. But despite there being little to no evidence that immigration affects jobs for British people or demand on public services, there has been no slowing down of the kind of rhetoric that is making the UK a pretty scary place for any non-British residents. So this week, I thought I'd speak to people who can explain more about why, when we're in an increasingly globalised world with more communication than ever before, Britain seems intent on shutting itself away in a windowless cupboard with the words fuck off and go home scrawled on the door in red paint. So yes, two interviews this week. First up is Carissa Singh, who runs the Post-Ref Racism Twitter and Facebook group, which is described as a safe space for people to report and document the increase in racial abuse in the UK since the Brexit vote. And then I spoke to Vera Chuck on her thoughts on the current climate. Vera is a writer and artist whose recent essay Yellow on being Malaysian-born but living in Britain appears in the fantastic new book The Good Immigrant. So, two longish chats, and in between I will be looking at the measures Theresa May, Amber Rudd and Jeremy Hunt mentioned this week that even Roger Helmer from UKIP said were going too far, and he's a man who once said equal marriage was the same as incest, a comment that has presumably meant he now gets a lot fewer invites to family gatherings. So, first up, here is Carissa Singh. Carissa is currently studying in New York, uh, and very kindly called me from there. Very exciting, even though this thing happens in the future all the time. Uh, and what it does mean is, uh, a couple of points during the chat, you do get the sound of New York police sirens. Because yes, that city is just like it is in the movies and on the telly. Uh, sadly, there are no sounds of superheroes, though, because it's not like those movies or those telly shows. Oh well. Here is my chat with Carissa. So last week's uh, Conservative conference uh, was filled with uh, some really scary kind of rhetoric about getting rid of foreign doctors from the UK and dissuading foreign students from studying here. Um, the Foreign Office is now barring academics at London School of Economics from offering advice on Brexit as they're from overseas. Uh, do you feel that Britain has kind of gone backwards in its attitudes towards diversity? Um, def definitely. Um, and you're right, it is very scary and very worrying. Um, I think that it's important to see this in the context of like the wider political history of um, normalization of racism and like xenophobic narratives. I mean, you can even trace it back to 9-11, where a lot of this, um, for example, Islamophobic rhetoric will have started. So can you give me some examples of some of the sort of uh, anti-immigration rhetoric that the that government and politicians use? So I think the, the important thing is it, immigrants are no longer kind of referred to as like real humans. We talk about floods of immigrants or invasions of immigrants or swarms of refugees. 
and this is just a, a massively dehumanizing way to to talk about immigrants and I think also talking about reducing numbers and having lists of um like lists of foreign workers it's all very um it's removing that human element and forgetting that these are actually people which is um what actually allows racism and xenophobia to happen because these people are no longer human beings they're no longer like us they are something else they are othered so yeah i think it's not a problem that's kind of sprung up overnight yeah, it's, I mean, it's something. It's it's felt like this has been brewing for for quite a while, and uh, I mean, and obviously, I know that what you specialise in is kind of, or, or what your your account on Twitter is is, is post Brexit racism. But y- this definitely feels like it's been happening for quite a few years now, hasn't it? Yeah. So if you think back, like I mentioned to nine eleven, we've had kind of mainstream politicians saying that, oh yeah, terrorism. We need to be really worried about terrorism, and it's kind of become this whole like scaremongering thing. Um, which is kind of increased mistrust and suspicion of the Muslim community. And then more recently, the anti-immigration rhetoric has kind of been coming through really strongly. Um, a lot of different myths that we see in the mainstream media and in mainstream politics about immigrants. Mm. Um, so I think what's happened in the UK is that immigrants and ethnic minorities and anyone considered other has become a scapegoat have become a scapegoat for the kind of wider problems of the UK. Yeah, so, so it's, um, sort of, it's sort of like misdirected, uh, do you think it's sort of misdirected anger that's that's what's happened? Yeah, I think, I mean, we have very real problems in the UK. I mean, we have problems with underfunding of the NHS, like there's a lack of economic justice. I, there are people who are living lives that are very difficult and they think, why is it that my life is so hard? And well, here's the answer. It's because the immigrants are stealing your jobs. Instead of um, focusing on the actual reasons why there are long waiting times in the NHS, for example, because it's like underfunded and mismanaged, it's easier to say, oh, it's because all of the the immigrants are taking up the space. And then instead of having a conversation about workers' rights or um, commitment to economic justice and reducing like the wealth disparity, it's easier to say, oh, well, the, the low skilled immigrants are undercutting you. So that's why you can't get a good job. And, so and do you think that's why sort of like the government are, are, are banging on about this at the moment and, and kind of towing that line and, and why it's not really being challenged by other politicians or media? Because do, do you think it's just easier for them to go along with the, the pointing the finger at immigrants line? Definitely at the beginning. I think that's how this whole thing started. I think it started as a, a scapegoat thing to detract from the real causes of the problems and because of the anti-terror um, the Islamophobic rhetoric that was going on. I think those are the two causes at the beginning. But I think now it's also a case of being in too deep. I mean, you've kind of, you've got everybody thinking this way. So you can't really turn around and suddenly say, oh, well, actually, that was all a bit of a lie. It was a bit of a, it was a bit of a deception. These are the real problems. So you kind of, we've created a position for ourselves where we can't really turn back very easily and actually to change the minds of people who have been seeing these kinds of um, negative representations of like immigrants and ethnic minorities for so long, it's going to take a long time. I mean, it took us a long time to get here. This has been happening over many years. And actually, it's probably going to take many years for us to get back to where we were before. That's, that's really depressing, though, that politicians feel they're in too deep, that they, they'd prefer to retain their own dignity than save other people that are sort of, you know, 
perhaps uh, victims of, of racial attacks and things like that. They prefer to say, hey, we weren't lying, which is, is really depressing. Um, it is incredibly depressing. And it's kind of, um, yeah, especially in, in, the, in the wake of the, I mean, it's so obvious that there's been an increase in hate in the UK and in hate crime. And I just don't understand how the politicians can't put two and two together to work out like why this is happening. And then maybe even if they don't publicly acknowledge it, maybe they want to save themselves face, but to privately reflect behind closed doors and realize that, okay, we need to start making a change because this is actually a result of things that we've been saying. And it just doesn't seem at all like that's what they've been doing, especially if you look at the, the, um, the policies that have come out of this week's conservative party conference last week, sorry. Yeah, they they were they were really very scary to hear, and uh, I mean, you were saying that, you know, that the politicians can't put two and two together. They are getting the figures. They do know how much sort of uh, racist attacks have increased. I mean, you you've set up uh, the post ref racism group. Um, what was the the first thing that made you do that? What was the kind of catalyst for you going? This needs to be documented. Well, it was the day of Brexit so I think it was like a Friday and I was um, in London with my brother at the Imperial University College Bar my brother was a student there um, and this guy just basically came up to us and started hurling racist abuse at us um, just out of nowhere completely unprovoked saying that we would never be true British and that he didn't care if we were here to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever that we should just go back to where we came from basically and so this was kind of startling. I mean, obviously, I've experienced racism before that, but this was very, like, direct. It was in the open. It was in broad daylight. It was in a public place. And it wasn't kind of, like, shout and run. He kind of came over very purposefully and, like, said this stuff to us and then calmly walked away. Um, so that was different for me. It was kind of he felt very legitimate in what he was saying. And then over the course of um, the day and, like, indeed the next few days, I heard a lot of incidents from friends and friends of friends, similar things. So basically the page was set up to make sure that it didn't go unnoticed so that we could actually like document this rise and this change in the nature of the, um, the racism and xenophobia in the UK. Yeah. I mean, it's, I should say it's really depressing that you said, obviously you've heard racial abuse before, which I think a lot of people don't realize how prevalent it's been in the UK for pretty much forever. Um, I think, but but there's uh, I think reports are saying it's sort of almost fivefold since the Brexit result. Is that correct? Um, I do have the numbers. I need to check them. If you go on our website, we've got links to all of the um, statistics from the police. Um, so I think um, the highest increase to so the week after Brexit was a 57 percent increase of reported hate crimes to the police on the same period of the last year. And then I think for the two months after that, it was kind of between 20 and a high of, I think, 60 percent, like looking week by week increase on the same period from last year. Um, and I think the, the last week that the police had recorded was a 16 percent increase on the same period last year. But they've decided not to release the week by week statistics anymore because they claim that it's dropped back to the pre-referendum levels. Right. Um, I think that's debatable. I mean, there is definitely something to be said for the fact that um, the police are trying to encourage people to report hate crimes, so that could maybe account for some small amount of the increase. But, I mean, the unreported hate crime is still vastly outweighing the amount that is reported. So um, I think that there definitely is still a need for 
for the weekly um, statistics, particularly given the severity of some of the cases we've seen against um, people of uh, Eastern European origin. Sure. I mean, I, I was going to say, like, how many reports do you sort of receive on, on the Twitter and Facebook account? Is it is it a lot and is it in certain areas of the UK or is it kind of all over? Well, the, the Twitter and the Facebook have become more space, I think, for discussion than right. for submission of original reports because after the first month we said that we were no longer going to log or kind of archive the submissions and that people should go to the official report mechanism, so like the police or third party sure. sources like Hate UK. But our analysis of um, the month after Brexit where we collated all of the submissions we received and also those of worrying signs and I Street Watch, um, it was basically the whole of the UK. Like there were things happening everywhere and it seemed to be a bigger concentration in urban areas, particularly in London. But obviously some of this is reflected in the fact that there are more social media users maybe in urban areas and perhaps in London because that's where the campaign was started. Maybe people were more aware of the campaign. So um, you have to take that into consideration as well. Um, But I think if you are interested in the demographics affected by... um, the race, these racist incidents and the nature of the uh, the abuse. Um, our report, which you can also find on our website, uh, outlines that in greater detail. Right, yeah, that's it's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting as well that, because I, I suppose quite naively, I'm, I'm from North London, I've always grown up in a very multicultural environment, and so I naively assumed that cities might be might be better, you know, might have less... Uh, less kind of instance of racial abuse but uh obviously that's very sad to know that it, that they haven't at all um well it, 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 they might be i mean it's hard to say i mean it could be that in rural areas perhaps in the areas where there are less ethnic minorities there are less incidents just because there are less people sure. to make an incident against um and it's also prob- probably partly because people in urban areas are more likely to to act on this and to like take it to the social media and to say what's been happening to them. Sure. Yeah, that does, that does make sense. Um, I guess the only thing we can safely conclude is that it is happening across the whole of the UK and definitely is happening in urban areas. Definitely. Yeah, sure. And and, and, as well as your report, there's been the, uh, the European commission against racism and intolerance. Uh, I think their report, was it last week, the week before? Yeah, they released a report last week. Um, and they've basically, linked directly and explicitly the political rhetoric of mainstream politicians in the UK to the um, to the increase in hate crime. And actually, they're not the only external report to do so. The, the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination also released a report, um, I think maybe a month ago, saying the same thing. And uh, Human Rights Watch also made a statement to that effect. So the international human rights community have have noticed and they have pointed it out. And for me, that's kind of even more reason why the politicians should be taking some time to reflect on the the way that they've been uh, talking about these issues, because it's, it's not just activists who are saying this, it's the EU and the UN. And that's embarrassing for the UK. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. I mean, do you, do you think they will take any notice of a UN report? I mean, they should, but do you think they will? Well, it doesn't seem like they have, given that this report was a month ago and this week we've seen some absolutely ridiculous policy proposals. Um, but I think the best thing we can hope for is that behind closed doors, having somebody who arguably is like a respected voice point these things out 
may cause them to reflect and perhaps change their rhetoric. But I'm not sure that we can rely on that happening. Oh, that's really bleak. I mean, I was going to say that I know um, you're currently speaking to me from America, which is thank you for, for uh, making time for this chat. But I mean, do you feel that the same is happening there? Because I mean, Trump's entire presidential campaign was pretty much based on racist and anti-immigration views, uh, especially at the beginning of it. Um, do you feel that it's it's this kind of anti-immigrant climate is, is across the whole Western world? Yeah, I do. I, I think it's very similar. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's exactly the same, but there's definitely similar factors. I think um, there's the whole, like the war, the war on terror kind of rhetoric has been happening throughout the whole of the West. So the Islamophobic narratives have kind of been growing in a similar way. And then we all suffered the economic recession of 2008. And I think we're still recovering from that. So there's a, a degree of, I don't know, economic uh, poverty or people do not. I think that the key is people feel that their needs are not being served by the the current political class. Their needs are not being met. And the answer kind of comes along in the form of anti-immigration rhetoric. And this is this is the answer to all your problems. So it's a similar kind of thing that's happening. So Trump represents a similar set of ideas that Brexit represented um, for me- for many voters. Uh, and this is also happening. I mean, the, the rise of the far right is happening in France, it's happening in Scandinavia. It's kind of happening across Europe and then also in the US. Um, so I think, yeah, the dehumanization of refugees, of, of migrants, of ethnic minorities, of non-white communities, it's happening really across, across the Western world, as you said. And so if that is the case, which I mean, it's, it's very, very obvious that it is. I mean, what is the way out of this? I mean, do you see there's a way out of this? Because obviously it's largely e- economical um, and, and people you know, people's desperate need for security. Uh, But if people are also ignoring facts, you know, there's tons of facts that are saying that immigration is not the cause of, say, British people losing jobs or anything like that. Um, But those are being ignored. What what should be happening to kind of tackle this widespread racism? What do you think the first steps would be to kind of to challenge it? Well, I I see it on several levels. So there's the the political level where I think we need strong counter-narratives to come into play, to come to the to the fore. I think the biggest problem we had with the, the Remain campaign was that they chose to make economic arguments against Brexit rather than to like actually confront and tackle head on the anti-immigration rhetoric that was um, going on in the Leave campaign. Um, so I think we need a, a kind of like coherent and together counter narrative to this anti-immigration rhetoric. We need the, the, politi- the politicians to kind of stand up and say, look, this is ridiculous, this is racist, this is xenophobic, this is um, turning into some sort of neo-Nazi nightmare. Like, we need we need to have that conversation in the public eye among politicians. So there's that level. Um, the media, I think, is a more difficult one to change. Um, they also need to stop being so responsible with their, their messages. Um, I often wonder if it would be possible to somehow give media outlets or certain articles like a stamp of kind of approval like oh yeah this is this is positive messaging or like this is containing like negative stereotypes or misrepresentations or this is like factually incorrect if there was a way to kind of mark that but I I think that's obviously a long way off um on the individual level I think 
is the place where we can we can actually we actually have control and we can start to make some difference is by actively challenging these narratives in your communities when you hear people talking about these things to like actually challenge what they're saying if you witness racism or xenophobic abuse happening to stand with the victim if it's safe to do so to stand up for them to call it out just to really prevent that creeping normalization to make it so clear that this is not acceptable and this is not the britain that we want to be part of and it's not the britain that we live in yeah that's um it's really important i, I think again that i think i think a lot of people have that um worry that if they stand up that they'll be threatened as well but actually there is you know it's long been known there's a lot of power in unity and kind of standing together with people uh makes you a lot more powerful kind of in tackling these things definitely um um, i'd say even if you don't feel comfortable to stand up in the moment that something's happening afterwards you can you can reach out to the victim and offer them support and make them feel less alone because if something happens to you and everybody around you just watches it's kind of interpreted to you as being complicit like nobody's speaking out obviously everybody thinks this must be fine otherwise somebody would be saying something so I think there's actually a lot of good that can be done um just by going and speaking to the victim and saying how horrible this was like can I help you to report this um even just measures like that I think can make a really big difference for that person sure yeah definitely just sort of reaching out and showing some kindness uh, I suppose very important. Um, and do you think, I mean, I'm just going to say, because I don't know if you saw this week, but um, after the, the Conservative conference, the, the UKIP MEP, Roger Helmer, actually said that the Conservatives have gone too far. And that made me realise how little any politicians have been uh, kind of speaking out against it, uh, that it's now landed with UKIP, which is very bizarre. Um, yeah, but is, uh, is, is there any sign of, of any, any major voices tackling it? Yeah, so I think... Um... Uh, Corbyn, in his uh, his speech at the Labour Party conference, I thought he made a very brave move in that he has refused to commit to trying to lower the numbers of uh, the immigration statistics, the immigration numbers, um, which I think the Conservative Party has become very fixated on. Oh, the people want the numbers to be lowered and that's what we're going to deliver. Whereas Corbyn is saying, actually, no, this isn't going to fix the, the real issues that we have. This is just part of um, stirring up xenophobic and racist sentiment and I'm not going to... I'm not going to I'm not going to be part of that. We need actual solutions to the to the problems that we have in the UK, not this um, kind of populist rhetoric, which I think is um, is a, a really good step in the, the right direction. And I I'm, I'm so glad that Corbyn is making that stand. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And just on a sort of last note, I, 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 I do often find that I get to the end of these interviews and sort of uh, actually, that was quite a nice point. But normally I go, oh, everything is quite bleak, isn't it? So just as a sort of positive end, I mean, what what uh, can people do? Um, well, firstly, actually, on a less positive, if they're, if they're frightened or they're concerned, what can they do? Uh, and secondly, what if what can they do if they want to help and they want to campaign against racial abuse? Are there any sort of groups um, or websites or things that you particularly recommend? Okay, so if you're frightened and concerned, um, if it's an emergency, obviously you get in touch with the police. Um, There are a lot of, uh, if you're not comfortable going to the police, there are a lot of third party reporting and support services like Stop Hate UK, um, Tell Mama, which is specifically for Islamophobic abuse. Um, Again, if you visit our website, we've got a list of resources for um, those who have been victims of abuse and those who are concerned about 
um, about racism and xenophobia, if you don't know what constitutes a hate crime, if you don't know how to report it, you don't know what your rights are at work with regards to this um, issue, you can find links um, on that on our website, as well as um, information on how to be a good bystander. So we've been, we've talked about um, standing up. Sorry, I think you can maybe hear some sirens in the background. <laughs> yeah. Like a loud street where I live. Um, yeah, so there are some resources there as well um, on being an effective bystander. How, how can you um, stand up against racism when you see it? Some, some practical tips there, which I think. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could be useful. Um, in terms of wanting to campaign and like wanting to... Um, to do something about this, I think lo- lobbying your MP, writing to your MP, holding events in your community, which show, first of all, um, non-white communities who live there, look, we- we're not part of this um, this racist sentiment, we're going to stand against it. And it also shows perpetrators and people who have these like racist views that actually everybody isn't with you, this is not acceptable, and we're going to we're going to fight against it. So I think that kind of like public event has a um, has a positive effect um, in terms of websites and groups you can join. Obviously, there's our Twitter and Facebook, but there's also um, Worrying Signs, who have a Facebook group, which is kind of a online support community to to discuss these issues. There's iStreetWatch, where you can um, anonymously kind of log incidents of uh, racism or xenophobia that have happened to you, and they, they are mapped. And um, recently, just this week, which I would absolutely recommend, there's an app that's been launched called Eyewitness App, which allows you to kind of document like with pictures and videos um, incidents that you see happening. And you can instantly send that evidence to the police anonymously, to the police and to the media. So that's definitely a good thing to download. And we can kind of ensure some justice for the, the victims of these incidents that way. Thanks to Carissa for chatting with me. You can find Post Ref Racism on Twitter at Post Ref Racism or on their Post Ref Racism Facebook page or on their website at postrefracism.wordpress.com. The app Carissa mentions is called Eyewitness and that's spelled E-Y-E Witness. It's not an Apple one. I mean, would you expect that from them? They got rid of the headphone socket for crying out loud. They don't want to help people. Uh, so yeah, Eyewitness app. And that is very worth everyone downloading uh, in case you see any sort of racial abuse and want to report it as you should. 
Right, that's interview one, and we'll get to this week's second interview with Vera Chuck in a minute. But before that, let's look at the statements made by the Conservative government this week across the board that many would deem to be highly concerning. Firstly, the Health Minister Jeremy Hunt and Prime Minister Theresa May both announced that foreign doctors working in the NHS will only be there for an interim period until more UK staff are available. I'm not surprised that saving lives is no longer valued by the government, considering it's at odds with so many of their welfare policies. But the idea that they can just magic up a tonne of UK doctors and then boot out any experienced, fully trained medics immediately after is absurd and worrying. Doctor training takes years, and with medical training funding cuts, as well as the junior doctor contract changes putting so many off continuing with their job, it'd be years before there are enough suitable jobs in Britain to fill the already understaffed gap. And in fact, just replacing British doctors with foreign doctors like for like won't fix the understaffing problem, as they'll just be the same amount as before, only now they'd be less experienced ones. So chances are not only would patients still have to wait as long to be seen, but when they get there they'd be greeted by a confused child with a toy stethoscope who describes everything as the lurgy. Not only that, but Jeremy Hunt wants to find doctors who train in the UK and then flee abroad, and you sort of think surely there's a better, easier way to fix both of these issues. You know, how about you don't find doctors who want to work abroad, and you just keep foreign doctors who for some reason want to save the lives of ungrateful British people who make them feel unwelcome. But you know, I guess that would require Jeremy Hunt, aka H.R. Geiger's interpretation of the Muppet Beaker, to actually do something sensible for once, and let's face it, that's hugely unlikely. The Home Secretary Amber Rudd made a number of worrying announcements, the first of which was that UK businesses should list all their non-British-born foreign workers, a move that prompted many to ask why she doesn't just make them wear yellow stars as well and have numbers tattooed on their arms. And as extreme as that sounds, I mean, really, that is very much what her comments sounded like. Rudd has backtracked over the statement now, saying that it was just to identify which areas had which skill shortages, and if that was why they were employing from abroad rather than in the UK. I mean, it does make you wonder that if every time there's a skill shortage in a certain area, you can just get people from abroad to fill it, and that maybe we could just employ politicians from abroad to work in the Home Office and the Department of Health and the Department of Education and the Department of Work. And yeah, you get the idea. Amber Rudd now insists the list of foreign workers would not be published and would only be viewed by the government. Yeah, you know, the government that includes people like Brexit Minister David Davis, who makes statements about how we have to make sure our own population are ready and equipped to work. Yeah, that government that would only have access to the lists. And they'll have all those details. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it'll be fine. The Home Secretary also announced a crackdown on overseas students, claiming that they don't have to learn English to come here, even though they actually do. In fact, to do a degree-level qualification in the UK, you need a B2 grade in reading, writing, speaking and listening in English, which is the equivalent of an A-level. To study a lower-level qualification, you need a B1, which is a Calvin Klein perfume, and that's a bit odd. Sorry, sorry, I mean it's the same as a high GCSE. So you can't study in the UK unless you have a reading ability that were Amber Rudd to have herself, she could have googled and read about that on many a website. Foreign students make up 167,000 of the 600,000 new migrants a year in the UK, so it would make a huge cut to the immigration statistic, but it would also take away £8 billion of funding from the economy. Universities would take a massive cut in fees, and suddenly by reducing foreign students you might be reducing places for other British students too, due to a lack of funding overall in education. It would be like cutting off your enemy's head to defeat them, then realising they were your Siamese twin and now you're also bleeding to death and attached to a headless body, which is both creepy and makes me feel a bit ill. Why would you do that? Where did you even get the sword from? 
Amber Rudd also spoke of a controlling migration fund, similar to the one that Jeremy Corbyn announced at the Labour conference, and the one that was originally introduced by Gordon Brown, until the Conservatives took it away, claiming it was too expensive. Starting in 2008, the original controlling migration fund was financed by a £50 levy on visas of non-EU migrants, and that fed into a £50 million pot to ease the pressure of immigration on public services and prevent community tension. David Cameron's Conservative government announced that scrapping that would save them £16.25 million, which was, with hindsight, incredibly short-planned thinking. So essentially the whole immigrants have ruined public services really boils down to we took away the money to help public services deal with population growth and then we ruined the public services too. But look, that man has dark skin and can't say Leicester properly. Amber Rudd's new version of this plan didn't say where she aimed to get the £140 million funding for it, but she did say that some of the money would be used to create a hostile environment for legal immigrants. So I presume it'll just pay for them to take a trip on the London Underground during rush hour in summer. So already this is a lot of let's just build a rule around our island and only inbreed type conversation. And while there has been a lot of everyone is Hitler chat this year, these do really feel like neo-Nazi persecutory methods. Especially when, and yes, I've said this hundreds of times on this podcast and you can all check the stats online at full fact, the UK is under no threat whatsoever from immigration and in fact there's quite a bit of proof that it really does help the economy and keep services like the NHS alive. And the most dangerous thing about the government ignoring this fact and aggressively peddling the racist bike? Well, it means events like schoolchildren being singled out are occurring. A Department of Education policy rolled out this year for schools to collect more sensitive information from pupils has been misinterpreted by many, causing them to demand passport details of non-white British kids to check they aren't illegal immigrants. Yeah, as if school wasn't hard enough, now as well as understanding maths, working out how to talk to members of the opposite sex and spots, kids now need to prove that they actually are allowed to live in the UK as well. Though at least I suppose that might be an icebreaker with a member of the opposite sex if they've been through it too. Hey, did Theresa May think you were an unnecessary threat to the country because of an unpronounceable surname as well? Yeah, let's grab a Ribena after history. I mean, maybe it's because things are so shit here now that we just don't want other people to visit and see it. You know, like how you don't want to invite people round because your flat's a mess and they may not like you as much if they see how long that kebab's been in the kitchen for and how worried you are that it might now be alive. Well, you know, maybe it's just that. And maybe the government just don't want respectable people from other countries to visit and go, oh, that is underfunded. God, that NHS is really falling apart. Or maybe, more likely, as we're in a country where the Daily Mail is the paper handed out at airports both on departures and arrivals, we are a country with hundreds of years worth of racial issues that we need to deal with. It is funny though how the government seemed perfectly happy with them foreigners that want to invest in luxury homes or nuclear power plants, eh? Now, interview number two. Vera Chock is a writer, actor and poet. As well as starring in a number of major theatre productions, she has written and has had published a number of articles about race, sex and gender. And in particular, she has recently had an essay published in The Good Immigrant, a collection of pieces by writers of colour in the UK that has received many, many rave reviews. So here's Vera. Okay, so... uh... The last week, uh, and in fact, I say the last week, the last year, few years uh, have seemed like pretty sort of dark times in the UK uh, in terms of our tolerance for racial diversity and equality. Why do you think that the government have really ramped up their anti-immigration rhetoric? I mean, how does it give them any advantage 
uh, in leading. I mean, because it seems like such a, a stupid thing to do if you want to be a global player, you know. I can't read their minds, but it seems to be... I think human beings are short-term creatures, and if we're trying to achieve certain goals, you know, it's quite easy to go with the easy route. And it's a popular thing that it's a very emotional subject, race, borders, immigration, identity, um, security. And so it's strategically as a politician, I first, you know, you want to get people's attention and you say the things that they want to hear. And it's a good hook. And and then you deal with the problems after, I guess. It's, it's, it's a bad long-term strategy, but I'm not surprised. And with, the, with regards to what you said about if we want to be sort of a global player, I mean, I think the positioning of this mission um, internationally, we've got to look at the history of it and just go, okay, it's because this country feels it has this position of privilege. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's something that we've never, ever lost since the colonial days, I think, have we? Well, funny you bring that up, because I was going to say, I mean, I didn't quite realise till couple of weeks ago that 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 colonial history is not taught in schools yeah and that's bizarre that's isn't it major problem because when we think about what is this country where does it come from what do we want it to be you know if you if you don't know about the empire <laughs> i mean i i grew up in malaysia which is an ex-colony ex-british colony so i'm very aware of the British Empire, but it's like it, it's so weird to me that everyone's sort of kind of pretending to be liberal and sort of benign, but there's no acknowledgement or awareness of its colonial past. I mean, do you think that's a, a, a problem overall? Is you know, the, the we seem to be hugely ignoring history. Uh, uh, entirely at the moment, there's there's so much evidence in history of what happens when you start dividing people and when you start being divisive towards people because of their ethnicity. Um, yeah. And you know, and I mean, obviously, there's all the obvious comparisons of World War Two and things like that. But generally, throughout history, that's been the case. And we don't seem to care at the moment. No one seems to be pointing this out. She's <laughs> terrifying. It's, it's really hard, isn't it? Like when something feels so emotionally distant. Or like, one, if you don't know about it, then you can't care about it. But even if we know about it in our brains as data or history or anecdotes, unless we actually feel it, like, what's the impact of, of saying, oh, these people shouldn't be allowed in here? I, I had this moment of, I was giving a talk at a bookshop um, with two women who were of South Asian descent, and I never said this out loud before, but it, it just kind of seemed appropriate at the time. And I just looked at the room and I said, are you saying that my value as a human being is more because my skin is lighter than these other people? And because our rhetoric is normally black and white, but then if you, you know, we were sat three of us on this stage and I went, are you seriously telling me? So, so you, it's hard to, when things are theoretical, it's hard mm. to care or like do any, um, kick into action but if people are in front of you that's why it's sort of when you go oh it's my daughter it's my neighbor it's my child it's 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 a cheap trick but it works sure <laughs> when you sort of personalize the impact 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why, you know, I remember sort of, uh, I think it was pre the referendum, there were lots of maps showing the places in the UK that most anti-immigration were the places with no immigration whatsoever. Yeah, it's like intangible fear is very easy to manipulate. Yeah, it's sort of fear of the unknown, isn't it, I suppose, if you're not used to people from elsewhere. It's, it's still, I mean, I suppose I've grown up in North London, so the whole idea of, you know, this kind of being racially divided is so, it's bizarre to me. Um, I mean, it is... Obviously, uh, the kind of the referendum and Brexit has been a real kind of kicking, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, a kickoff for all this happening. Uh, and there's been uh, proof that there's been an increase in racial attacks since that. But yeah. as you're someone, I, I know that you regularly speak on the subjects of diversity and equality. Do you feel like this has been brewing for a much longer time than that? Or do you think this has been a definite sudden change since uh, after June 23rd? Um, I could feel it rising you know, in the in the weeks and months leading up to the vote. But I think for sure this sort of mass public event has definitely given people courage and and, and a position to 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 say all these things. Also, I don't necessarily think that everyone who's saying race saying or doing racist things are racist. Right. I do think there is something to be said about if you're disenfranchised or powerless or ignored, or if you don't feel that you have any impact in society and someone gives you a target, then it's very easy to go, yeah, that is the problem. But so it's several things. But yeah, definitely this public focus on this scale has um, allowed people to behave terribly. Yeah, it's huge. So are you, are you, do you think it's sort of like... A lot of it is misdirected anger, then. I, mm, I don't know. I, you know, let's not talk percentages. I think it's a combination of general. I mean, human beings do always categorize us, them, I'm me because I'm not you. You know, like anybody who looks different, and it's not just race. It's to do with all sorts of things, like, like the way people dress, or you know, sexuality, things like that. So we always categorize, but when it's so such a big movement to sort of point the finger at the cause of you know poverty or like lack of jobs it's so it's so easy the media is such a it's it's done such a bad job of like creating fear yeah yeah and and I guess I, I mean I say especially so sort of in as, as long as I've been alive I think the Daily Mail has has made an effort to do that uh, as is the sun but it, it does feel like in the last sort of three or four years it's made a, a special effort I think uh, you know as have sort of the southern papers to, to really kind of have front pages warning us of refugees or immigrants or anyone that's remotely different. Yeah I think it's sort of it's also just basic things like um group group instinct you know like and also if you feel it's exciting it's exciting to see if how much we can rock the boat what's going to happen next if we feel our life is shit already you know like ooh, what's going to happen if we press this red button (laughs) yeah i understand this impulse and like obviously you know if you don't know the consequences of voting if you know, if we don't really understand the the long term fallout of voting one way or the other, it's quite fun to win something if you <laughs> don't know what it means. And then, then, 
and yeah, exactly. Then you go back to the position of privilege. If you don't think, if you've never experienced being marginalized or discriminated against, none of this stuff means anything to you. Of course. Of course. I mean, that is something that I, uh, you know, I am, I am a white male. Uh, I, but I, I, uh, I think reading uh, reading the book that you've written an essay uh, in as part of the Good Immigrant, I think that was something that I was absolutely alerted to of going, oh my god, the amount of uh, the amount of discrimination that that people go through from from childhood uh, living living in a predominantly white country is is horrific. I don't think I I had any idea to the extent of it. I think I had to learn that. I mean, I've learned that as well, you know, the extent to which it affects me. And it's like, it is, it is the color of my skin. Um, obviously, like, there's no getting away from it. Even though I grew up in Asia, I didn't grow up in a place where, you know, I'm ethnically Chinese. I didn't grow up in China where everyone looked like me. Right. And so that I, yeah, I've experienced different kinds of, um, categorization and like how you interact with different people and when things matter like imagine if we just went mm, people with blue eyes they're really dodgy you know it's yeah. so irrational yeah it's completely irrational and i i i mean especially as, as we mentioned earlier with the colonialism the fact that we went to so many other countries and and just invaded them and then took people as slaves and brought them here against their will now that people are coming here of their own free will, we're very angry about it, which doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> but I mean, do you think patriotism is 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 a part of it? You know, we've we've that's been a large part of the rhetoric lately of this idea of British values and and that you know we we're a sovereign nation, all that, which personally I think is nonsense. <laughs> but I mean, do you think that has any place anymore? Is it you know what's what's the worth of of being patriotic? I'm really interested in this because I. I, it comes back to what we've been talking about. If you don't know what you believe in, then it's really dangerous. If you don't know the history of your country, if you, if you, if this vague idea of um, returning to some great Britain, a lot of you know, as a person who's um, I guess immigrated to this country, I I have an outsider's view, but like there is definitely a rejection of the class system, but that's what Britain's built on. Mm. The people are sort of really anti-monarchy and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when I grew up in Malaysia, I was thinking, oh, the Queen, it's so wonderful to have all these <laughs> symbols. And is it, I, I quite like singing my national anthem every day. And all this, it gives people, I mean, I don't think, like anything that gives people focus or structure in a scary, big world is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you don't know what you believe in, then you get swept up um in, in the in the culture of it sure. and and then it becomes dangerous so if you're harking back to the good old days then if let's go back to having sort of landed gentry and all that kind of stuff you know and you know queue up for your buses yeah. <laughs> um yeah i what i find strange is that people don't know what they're asking for yeah we sort of found that with the you know this this recent demand for we want our blue passports back and you sort of think I don't know how that's going to make any difference to anything you know it's uh and also it's not it's not particularly sovereign there's there's about 70 odd countries that have blue passports so (laughs) (laughs) I think it is very much about okay so I've been um I've been thinking a lot about race and national and and identity but also about mental health and I (laughs) this week I thought I think I think this country is depressed 
and I don't know what giant pill that it can take. It's, <laughs> I, I've always thought that there's, it's, it's suffering from a post-empire depression. And because we don't know about the details of the empire, it's just this big, big weight. And people don't understand why they don't feel great. Um, you know, what gives them their identity? It's all in the past. Or, or, we'll find, or we're trying to find things in the present that give us this feeling that we're worth something or we have a place in, uh, in, international, in the international landscape. But nothing, is, nothing as big as the empire is going to come along. So we're kind of scrabbling around. And I say we, I mean, that's a loose thing because I still feel or rather, the, the longer I'm here, the more foreign I feel. But yeah, we're scrabbling around trying to find a replacement. And I, I don't know, there needs to be some sort of intervention. But that, that, that's not how countries work. No, no. And I suppose, if, if anything, being part of the EU is the closest we'll get to being an empire ever again, yeah. I'd have thought. Yeah. And yeah. It's, um, it's, it's interesting you say that the longer you live here, the more you feel foreign. That's Is that because of the current climate or is that... You know, is that just this, the British society in general? What's what's caused that feeling? It's the climate, but also, you know, as you grow up, you're more aware. You're sort of, I grew up in a very sort of sheltered environment. I believed everything the press told me was true. Um, you know, coming here, I've grown, I've become wiser, hopefully, and more aware of, of different points of view. And you just see things more clearly. And I thought coming to Britain, I would... As a, as a person from a colony, I, I was so familiar with the culture, but this is a construct. This is sort of like a fuzzy, wonderful construct of mm, the wonderful British Empire with all its manners and class and good quality manufacturing. That's all gone now. Sure. Yeah, you must have been quite shocked. <laughs> and the reality of it is, like, we need to, well, what's the future? And so, yeah, and, and um, being an actor being constantly reminded that my I'm judged on my on how I look so it's I mean it's not just race it's my my gender as well but yeah I don't fit in into the narratives that current into the most of the the narratives that are being presented in media at the moment and I think wow I've lived in this country for such a long time and I'm not I'm not treated equally at all it's it's something um uh, as you mentioned that you work in the in the sort of acting industry and I uh, I've I've just spent last weekend watching uh, Marvel's Luke Cage uh, series which I don't know if you remotely interested oh but it's God, yeah finish what that yeah it, 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 how it, like I think there's maybe one white actor and he's a bad guy which is incredible and um, <laughs> uh, and and I've seen people online get angry about that because they're pathetic but uh, I mean do you feel like there's been so many years where television has been whitewashed and so has film and, and theatre. And do you feel that we're progressing, uh, you know, and in, in changing that at all? Do you think there's, uh, I mean, because it does feel like it's, we should have been doing that years ago, but in the last year or so, it, it, to me, it feels like there's been a slight difference. Is that the case? Um, yeah, I think so. But just let me go back slightly. I said, oh, I don't, I'm not treated equal in this country. But I think, again, it's not, if, if I was in France or in China, mm. I still think I would be looked down on by 
people in this country. It's a general positioning of like whiteness. And when I say whiteness, I mean American or British, not like Polish, Italian. You know, there is a a hierarchy of whiteness and a hierarchy of colors. So in terms of media, I think it it feels like it is changing with the Oscars So White um, that was very highly publicized. In England, Act for Change is... um, it, it's a movement that covers diversity in terms of, you know, all across the board. And that's why I think it's effective. It's not just sort of one camp saying, um, asking for for more exposure or to be treated well. It's sort of like, it's gender, sexuality, class, able-bodied um, versus disability, all that kind of stuff. And so I think people are just more aware. Um, I don't know whether it's moving fast enough, but I don't know. I, I think it's Netflix TV is in really important medium. Mm. It's populist and it goes straight into people's homes and it's free. I mean, it's pretty much free. And, um, but I think the thing is we get to choose what we watch. So on, you know, there's a whole bunch of us watching Luke Cage, but that doesn't matter. Sure. <laughs> it's like kind of preaching to the converted in a way. And there's a whole lot of other people who are, going to watch what they want to watch so it's about i'm interested in people communicating and i don't know where we do that anymore with the way we interact online and we just have tribes don't we that's the problem if we don't interact with people who are different with us then it's quite easy to point the finger yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Um, I think George Monbiot calls it the age of loneliness because we're actually more segregated because we choose just to listen to our own. I hate that term, but echo chambers. You know, we follow our own Twitter timeline and we yeah. watch what we want. And uh, uh, he says that that's quite dangerous. And uh, and I mean, I also wonder if it's something that uh, because I mean, like you're uh, very progressive in what you do in in, in theatre and arts and things. And I know many artists that are. Um, and and you know, particularly, I know a lot of like comedians that speak out against racism and and for change yeah. in society. But a lot of people don't receive those arts, and and it's not being challenged uh, in politics or in society. I mean. Do you feel uh, that with the you know I guess with the with the states now as well with 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 Trump who uh, it's I mean obviously horrific misogyny comments this weekend but it does feel like everyone's ignored the very racist comments he made before that it's uh, sort of had a build up um, do do you feel it's being challenged enough in in society where where does where does the kind of uh, uh, anti immigration uh, rhetoric need to be challenged more I haven't oh phrased that very right I'm very sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. I, I remember walking around before we voted um, for the referendum thinking, I don't know if the people I'm seeing on the street are going to vote, even though, um, you know, it, it's going to directly affect them. And I'm talking about people of color or, or like, um, if, if you don't feel you're going to make an impact, then why participate? <laughs> so I don't know how you access people. I don't know where anyone can focus any of their attention, but I, I, my gut instinct, because this is the personality type I am, is right. to, I don't know, try and, is to sort of connect with the people who are local to you. So, because I think peer-to-peer social-led social change is the most powerful. Like, if you, I've seen this work with myself and with friends, like, if your immediate surroundings 
um, they really affect the way you see the world. So if you're connecting with the people next door, like we don't do that anymore. We don't talk to our neighbors. This is, a, <laughs> I think it's important. And that's how we move forward. It's a slower way. It's not as sexy as going, hey, this is like a new, exciting, boundary-breaking TV program or an arts movement, or this isn't a sexy politician who's changing stuff. I mean... Those things are sexier, but they might be a bit more faddish. But maybe both things need to happen top down and like locally. Yeah, yeah. We all need a Justin Trudeau uh, in every area. Is that what you mean? <laughs> I'm not sure about Justin Trudeau in every area. I think it, I think every ordinary, everyday person has the ability to be more in, more themselves and more engaged, and then in their locality, in their neighborhood. Sure. I mean, this is really old-fashioned kind of talk, but I, it, it for me, if you're more connected to human beings that way, I think it's less likely that we'll go around butchering each other. Yeah, yeah well, it's interesting. You know, we talk about people wanting the good old days. That feels like a good area to look at uh, in the past when people had more connectivity in their own community, I think, rather than yeah. blue passports, probably. Um, and and what, uh, just to sort of finish, I, I realise that, that often on this podcast we have these uh, lovely conversations with people and I always end by going, oh, it's all very bleak. So what, <laughs> uh, if I can think of a sort of nicer note, is, is there anything that you would recommend people could do if they're upset or frightened or, or incited to kind of do something to tackle this current climate? What should people get involved in what can they check out i'm a little bit stuck in this question because i'm not sure myself but i find it i find social media helpful to me in terms of me expressing my fears or connecting with other people um is there anyone you'd recommend people follow then or particularly look up um bernadette russell um, on Twitter, she's at Betty, B-E-T-T-E underscore Russell. But if you just Google Bernadette Russell, she's a artist who makes performances and she writes. And her main thrust is kindness. And it sounds very simplistic, but I, I think I guess that's what I've been talking about today as well. Like everyday small amounts of kindness that sort of remind us that we're human beings and remind us of what we want in the world because if we shout you know, it's so easy to go around I want a blue passport because it that we feel that that's going to make us feel better but it's not it's about <laughs> I don't know connecting or being really rooted or understanding who we are and where we are and how we how we can get other people to smile and and have an imp and they can have an impact on us that kind of stuff is really powerful it's not very sexy sorry <laughs> but yeah no the racism is interesting just to, just to say because I have so many of my own prejudices but I'm it's about being aware mm. and going no this is wrong I shouldn't um because I definitely am bigoted in all sorts of ways and I just go okay I'm aware of this don't make any decisions based on these stupid thoughts yeah that's very interesting I well I had um a similar thing. I'm wondering that it's, it's still recording, but I shouldn't include this really because we're off the record. But uh, <laughs> but I uh, 
Yeah, I had a real, do you know, at, at the age of, what was I, 13, 14, I got mugged by a group of, uh, of, of black teenagers. And, and uh-huh. for the next couple of years, I spent a lot of time being very wary of groups of young black men because it, yeah. it terrified the crap out of me because I'd been mugged at knife point. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's only when I've, as I've got older, I've realised, oh, all teenagers are scary. Uh, it's fine. But um, <laughs> it's the sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was an interesting metaphor in one of those sort of like slightly cheesy but helpful videos of the metaphor of, you know, we're, our, we're not our skin color. We're driving this vehicle, this car, and mm. it happens to be a black car, a yellow car, a white car, or whatever, but like it's it's not us. And I'm like, oh, for some reason that was like, obviously that's true. But yeah, I have all these assumptions when I see someone who's different looking. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, I wonder if it's ingrained somewhere, you know, uh, I suppose back to the early days of tribal nature and, yeah, you know, who knows. So it's, uh, it's, that's why I think, you know, it's natural to, to, to categorise, it's just what do we do with this information? Thanks to Vera for chatting with me. You can find her on Twitter at Vera underscore Chok. That's V-E-R-A underscore C-H-O-K. Or her website, verachok.org, which has her excellent blog and everything she's up to on it. The Good Immigrant Book is an amazing read as well, and I would highly recommend picking up a copy. Uh, You can grab that online at most good bookshops and probably several bad ones as well. Uh, as always, if there is someone you'd like me to interview or a subject area you'd like me to find someone to interview about, please do drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or in fact, even more than just a line, why not put some text in it as well? Be a maverick. Brexit Okay, a brief Brexit update today. Uh, the Remainers finally have a champion. That's right, Ed Miliband. What do you mean? Why are you crying? No, 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 look, no, no. I know he's not been very good at winning things before, but this is a sort of interesting thing. And look, I promise there's not a bacon sandwich in sight. Ed Miliband has been working with pro-EU Conservatives and other MBs from other parties to force the government to give Parliament a say on triggering Article 50. A number of MPs are on board, including Nicky Morgan, Anna Subri and Nick Clegg. No, 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 wait, why are you crying again? Look, I promise this is good, because while the court case is due for a result any day now about whether Parliament should be allowed a vote in the Article 50 triggering, in the meantime, Miliband has actually gained cross-party support and a hard Brexit now has some sort of actual opposition, which is very much needed. Brexit Secretary, and man so bad that they almost named him twice but gave up, David Davis, said in the Brexit debate in Parliament today that MPs won't get to vote on Brexit negotiations but could still be asked to approve the final deal. You know, if only to check spelling and occasionally explain to Davis what bits of it actually mean. David Davis also stated they will seek the most open barrier-free market we can. Full stop. That will be as good as the single market. Which seems to be suggesting they definitely won't stay in the single market. And also sounds quite a lot like he's describing my local farmer's market, which only really has a barrier for cars. But then once you're in, it's all go. And they have really lovely cheese. Oh, and on a silly note, two MPs in one week have now said breakfast when they meant to say Brexit. Conservative MP Craig Treacy said it in the Brexit debate, and Welsh Tory Andrew R.T. Davis at the Conservative conference. Though while it seems like a really silly, fun mix-up, 
Judging by the rhetoric coming from the Conservative Party this week, it's highly likely they were just both fantasising about some sort of deal that leaves them with a full English result. And that's all for this week's episode. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoyed, you can subscribe and listen to previous episodes, some of which are still relevant because it seems things don't get fixed very often. That's usually quite a terrible thing, but in terms of you listening to previous episodes of the podcast, that is great. I mean, you can go, oh, that is still awful, even though this podcast is four months old, and then chuckle knowingly to yourself. Or chuckle knowingly to someone else and really creep them out. If you can give us a review on iTunes, it is always, always appreciated. Uh, you know, unless it's a bad review, then it isn't appreciated. And I want you to know I will find you and write a bad review of your face and then post that somewhere and we'll see who likes it. Sorry, I mean, please just give us a nice five-star review, eh? Uh, also, don't forget, as of this week, this show has a Patreon where you can go and send me money because, I mean, let's face it, what else are you going to do with that cash? What? Pay bills? Pfft, who's bill? Pfft. Anyway, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and give me the money instead of Bill. I mean, he sounds like a chump. This week's episode was going to be brought to you by several numbers and letters, but it turns out they're all foreign in origin. So under new home office rules, episode 33 is just brought to you by... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.